0: By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash
1: gps. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the program, after seven days, the truce between Israel and Hamas is over and the war is back on. I'll ask a former IDF officer whether Israel's tactics will change in this phase. Will it be more precise, more careful about civilian casualties, as the United States has asked? Then I will talk to a man who knows those casualties well, a British-Palestinian surgeon who has worked in Gaza's hospitals during the war. Finally, the death of America's most famous 20th century statesman, Henry Kissinger. I will talk to his biographer, Neil Ferguson, about how Kissinger changed the world for better and for worse. But first, here's my take. Henry Kissinger, who died this week at 100 years old, may have been the most famous foreign policy practitioner in modern American history. But he practiced foreign policy for just eight of those hundred years. He left office as Secretary of State nearly half a century ago. And yet, admired or despised, he managed to hold the world's attention long after his power waned. What explains this remarkable run? He was that rare breed a doer and a thinker, someone who shaped the world with ideas and action. First, his accomplishments. Kissinger presided over a pivotal moment in the Cold War when it looked to much of the world like America was losing. The United States was in fact losing a hot war in Vietnam, the first major defeat in its history on which it had staked its reputation over four administrations. The Soviet Union was on the offensive, building up a massive nuclear arsenal and gaining allies across the world. By the end of his eight years in office, things looked different. The Vietnam War was over. The Soviet Union's forward momentum had been thwarted by a diplomatic coup, the opening of relations between Washington and Beijing. That one stroke moved China, the world's second most important communist power, cleanly out of the Soviet camp. Simultaneously, relations with the Soviet Union softened and negotiations yielded major arms control agreements. In the Middle East, Moscow's long-standing ally, Egypt, expelled its Russian advisors, moved into the American orbit, and began negotiating with Israel, a process that culminated some years later in the first peace treaty between an Arab country and Israel. Kissinger was the motive force behind each of those four achievements. Everything Kissinger did was surrounded by controversy. The right blasted him for the opening to China, which was seen as a betrayal of Taiwan, which until then was the only China that Washington recognized. Conservatives also hated the detente with Moscow. And many liberals believed that with an obsession with credibility, Kissinger dragged out the Vietnam negotiations for far too long, signing a deal in 1973 that was not so different from the one he could have accepted in 1969, which would have spared the lives of tens of thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese, Cambodians, and Laotians. He presided over terrible failures as well. His support for Pakistan as it tried to brutally crush a rebellion in what became Bangladesh was an abomination and a failure. The bombings of Cambodia and Laos caused untold human suffering and distorted the politics of the region for decades. His disregard for human rights in places like Chile and Indonesia left a long shadow over America's reputation. Kissinger was the first Jewish Secretary of State and also the first immigrant to ascend to that office. 13 members of his family died in the Nazi death camps. That background shaped his worldview, though he spoke about it rarely. He grew up in Germany as Hitler came to power and watched what was perhaps the most advanced and civilized nation in the world descend into barbarism and mass murder. He developed a lifelong obsession with order. He was too suspicious of democracy and human rights, but it was because he had seen demagogues like Hitler rise to power through elections. He often remarked, sometimes attributing it to Goethe, that between order and justice, He would choose order, because once chaos reigns, there is no possibility for justice. I met him first three decades ago, and over the years got to know him quite well. We had both been graduate students in the same department at the same university, and many of his colleagues had been my professors. He was a complicated man, warm, witty, proud, thin-skinned, sometimes paranoid but always deeply curious and intellectually serious about the world. He was the only global celebrity I ever met who, when the lights dimmed, retreated to his library to read the latest biography of Stalin or reread Spinoza. He once famously attributed his success in America to being seen as a lone cowboy pursuing his mission. The image of Kissinger as cowboy might seem odd, but he was right about being a solitary figure on the American strategic landscape. In a country of optimists, Henry Kissinger was a European pessimist. He began his career worrying about nuclear weapons, and he ended it worrying about artificial intelligence. Over the years in our conversations, he would speculate gloomily that Japan was going to become a nuclear power, that Europe would fall apart, and that Islamic extremism would triumph. In our last lunch, just a few weeks ago, he worried about Israel's ability to survive in the long run. From start to finish, over a century, Henry Kissinger's abiding fear was that disruptive forces once set in motion could easily rip off the thin veneer of civilization and stability, pushing the world into the abyss, like the one in which he came of age. Go to cnn.com slash Fareed for a link to my column this week. And let's get started. The delicate seven-day truce came to an end Friday as Israel accused Hamas of firing rockets into its territory. The idea then swiftly resumed airstrikes on Gaza. The truce had seen Hamas release over 100 hostages, while Israel released almost 250 Palestinians. Now, Israel isn't just fighting Hamas, it's also trading fire with Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed Islamist militant group based in Lebanon. CNN's senior international correspondent, Ivan Watson, is in southeastern Lebanon with the latest on that front. Ivan, tell us: um, Is there a kind of escalation? Because so far, what has been striking is, despite many fears, both Hezbollah and Iran seem to have been fairly restrained. So, if there is some heating up here, um, how did who's who's uh, who's escalating on which side of the border?
3: Well, since the the truce ended in Gaza, Uh, that truce was applied to some degree here along the border between Lebanon and Israel. Uh, And since the fighting resumed in Gaza, this kind of artillery duel between Hezbollah and Israel on the border has resumed. So just where I am, I've been hearing the thud of incoming uh, Israeli artillery over the course of the uh, last couple of hours. Uh, There was a a blast, some kind of a strike about an hour and a half ago that shook the building I'm in and frightened some of the remaining residents in the surrounding villages, some of whom said they'd never felt uh, an Israeli strike this close to this area. Uh, it has not been of the same intensity uh, of the fighting that you've seen in Gaza, in part because this area is not nearly as densely populated. The villages around here are largely evacuated. The buildings are closed right now. The civilians do have places to run to, but it's right, you've pointed out, we have not seen uh, the war on this border, the conflict escalate to the levels that we saw in 2006, when uh, Israel was bombing targets in Beirut uh, and triggering a mass exodus by sea of people out of Lebanon. That said, it has been deadly uh, in the first month and a half here. At least 100 people killed on this side of the border. The majority of them Hezbollah fighters, but also more than a dozen civilians, including uh, journalists. So this is something to watch closely right now because there are fears, I think, on both sides of the border, that. This- This could ramp up and Lebanon is not in any position to sustain a war. It is in political crisis. It hasn't had a president in more than a year. It has an acting prime minister and it's still reeling from a devastating economic crisis, which the World Bank has described as one of the worst in the world since the 19th century, where last year you had 30% unemployment and from 2019 to 2021 GDP per capita shrunk some 36%. So anecdotally, while many Lebanese have uh, a lot of sympathy for Gazan civilians and the tremendous death toll in Gaza as a result of Israel's offensive there, I think there's very little appetite for a full-fledged war. And even this kind of low-level conflict that we're seeing along the border here is having an impact on Lebanon's economy. This is a time when Tourists normally come in ahead of the Christmas holidays, and we're not seeing that right now because of the fear. If anything, people are leaving Lebanon because they're afraid this could escalate further. Fareed?
2: Fascinating summary, Evan. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Next on GPS, I will talk to a retired IDF colonel about Israel's main war in Gaza. What is its strategy there? We'll find out.
0: This podcast is supported by NetSuite. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit from NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com
1: slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: French President Emmanuel Macron said yesterday that Israeli leaders need to more precisely define their goal because the total destruction of Hamas would mean the war will last 10 years. Vice President Kamala Harris said Israel must do more to protect innocent civilians. So as Israel resumes its offensive in Gaza, what is its strategy and will it heed America's call to safeguard civilian life? I'm joined by Miri Eisen, a retired colonel in the IDF and director of the International Institute for Counterterrorism. Miri, welcome. So if you were in response to President Macron to define uh, Israel's strategy, how would you describe it?
4: Destroying Hamas is very challenging, as he said. But what the Israeli strategy is, is we're focusing on their military terror capabilities. That's actually something you can break down in a very specific way. You're going after 16 years of building positions, accumulating weapons, building the subterranean arena, and training these different thousands of terrorists. And that's what Israel is doing with the military capability. It goes hand in hand with the diplomacy. Because of the issue of the hostages, you want to try to get to the hostages. I'll remind that that's part of the picture. But it's most definitely focusing on destroying military capabilities and thinking about that next day of what will come instead.
2: So if it is focused on destroying those specific military capabilities, presumably these are tunnels, these are passageways, these are uh, weapons caches, Um, shouldn't there be a greater emphasis on sending in IDF special forces rather than what appears to be a kind of more carpet bombing approach? In other words, I I realize that, of course, puts IDF forces in harm's way, but isn't that a more precise and tactical way? I mean, this is something the U.S. discovered in Iraq, uh, that you have to send special forces in rather than just bombing the entire neighborhood to smithereens?
4: So you could say in that sense, Farid, that what we were doing in the three weeks of the ground offensives is what you're talking about, but it isn't only special forces. It's a combination of different type of infantry forces because you need to go in. It's urban area, very densely populated. The first thing that Israel did before we went into the ground operation at all is we were telling civilians Please move, go to the areas that we define to save your lives. You're going into urban areas that are still unhappily filled with civilians. And so when I say systematically and slowly, you're going in to make sure that you never target civilians, but you do get to the different positions that are built into apartment buildings, into mosques, into schools, into kindergartens. So you need the forces on the ground to do that. You need a large portion of forces to be able to detect the shafts that go into that subterranean arena. You have to have forces on the ground. It's a combination of special forces together with the different types of infantry, of engineering corps, that can go in and blow up those tunnels. And all of this, Farid, where we all know that there's the challenge that the hostages themselves most likely held, mainly inside the tunnels, so you have to do everything systematically and slowly. I know it seems like we're doing it from the air. It's actually very much on the ground we were still on the ground in this week of the um, the pause which was done to get out our hostages as much as possible but it's taking it systematically and slowly save the civilian lives we need to do so not just for us it's the right thing to do but because at the end of the day the civilians in the Gaza Strip deserve a much better future than one where Hamas rules
2: the 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 reason i think many people think it's it's been a war mainly from the air is by the idea of its own numbers the number of bombs it has dropped uh, on, on, on in northern gaza uh, far exceeds in 45 or 50 days far exceeds what the u.s dropped in afghanistan over four or five years so when you look at southern gaza i'm wondering you've already moved a million people into that area so now it's twice as densely populated as it was how will you manage this balance? Uh, Is there a different, more more precise, more targeted approach, or is it going to be a replay of what we saw over the last 45 days?
4: The biggest challenge in that sense is the way that the terrorists themselves over 16 years embedded themselves and built themselves all of these different positions within the urban area underneath it in that subterranean arena. So when we look towards the south, and you're absolutely right, it's a way larger amount of people, as we told the people to go from the north to the south. And we have been doing that again now, Farid. We've been telling people in the area of Hanunis, specifically where to go to save their lives. Does it make it easy? Does it make it pretty? How do you actually change in that sense? You do it carefully with as much information as you have the information is not from the air per se you need to go in and to start it um, i don't think in that sense that my biggest challenge for me as an israeli is that i can't as an israeli leave the hamas there in any way what they built there over 16 years is something that threatens our existence in the fact that if this type of terror organization can do so embedded in the population this is a threat for the entire Middle East. So we will go in, we will try to be as exact as possible. And I say it not just for myself, for my kids who are the ones who need to do that kind of targeting. We're talking about Israeli soldiers who have to make these decisions. You never target civilians, but the entire Gazan arena is urban warfare. And that's the biggest challenge there is. Slow, systematic, careful.
2: Mary Eisen, thank you so much. That gives us a much, much better sense of what is going on. Um, Next on GPS, we will bring you a vivid picture of the toll that the war is taking on Gaza civilians. I'll talk to a surgeon who has just returned from 43 days in operating rooms in the Gaza Strip. israel has issued new evacuation orders for southern gaza similar to the ones it gave in october before the ground invasion of northern gaza this has prompted fears that a new brutal campaign may be imminent in the south joining me now is a man who has seen for himself the devastating effects of the war in gaza on civilians dr Abdul Sita is a british palestinian reconstructive surgeon who returned to the UK last week from 43 days in the Gaza Strip, operating at the Al Shifa and Al Ahli Arab hospitals? He has given evidence to Scotland Yard of what he alleges are war crimes. Welcome, Dr. Abu Sitta. Let me ask you: You have um, treated wounded civilians in the wars in Iraq, in Yemen, in um, uh, Syria, and and in. The wars in gaza i think everyone since the second Intifada, um i'm wondering how what you're what you're seeing now compares to what you have seen in the past
5: but if i understood your question about the difference between um the two experiences it's really the difference between a a flood and a tsunami i'd never ever experienced something of this magnitude the idea that 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 you would be operating um for 43 days um and 50 percent of those that you were operating on were children uh the sheer number the magnitude of all of the injury and all of the killing was like nothing i'd ever seen before uh
2: and what about the the facilities are they were they getting better were you finding it was possible uh, to get power, to get, uh, you know, medical supplies, or are
5: things getting worse? Every day felt worse than the day before. Um, we were running out of, initially, running out of antiseptic solutions, and uh, uh, specialist dressings for burden. But by the end, we'd run out of morphine, we'd run out of ketamine that we used to anesthetize patients that, that needed Dressing changes. I was having to do really painful dressing changes to keep wounds clean, with nothing but uh, paracetamol and 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 no ketamine as the ketamine ran out. Um, the day that I decided to leave in Ahling, literally that five o'clock um, in the morning that day, we finally ran out of all of the anesthetic medication. We are no longer able to to treat any of the patients um, in the OR.
2: Do you worry that uh, with with these operations in southern Gaza that there could actually be a total collapse of the of the healthcare the hospital system itself?
5: The thing about southern Gaza is it only had between a third and a quarter of all of the beds in the Gaza strip. And with the doubling of its population and now the sheer number of wounded I mean when I moved to the south the last 2 days I felt completely uh, helpless. There was no way of getting in patients to the operating rooms. They were so short of supplies. There was such a pressure on the operating rooms, and there were so few operating rooms that I, that's why I decided to leave Gaza. Uh, because I felt as a surgeon, I'd become redundant. The system had collapsed so much. And so if now there's a major uh, land page, it really is just, uh, it will be the end of, 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 anybody who gets wounded and the wounded are stacking up in the hospital because as things stand that system is uh, incapable of dealing with the injury uh
2: dr abu sila you know that uh, you were in al shifa hospital you were operating there you know that the israeli government says that this was a key headquarters for hamas or or a control center for hamas did, did you see anything there? Um, do you have any comment on that Israeli allegation?
5: First of all, that that does not, I mean, so the the whole narrative about Shifa, um, that, you know, distracts from the fact that the whole system was attacked and dismantled. Before they got to Shifa, they, they dismantled four pediatric hospitals. You know, they had attacked Uh, uh, And since Shifra, they've attacked the hospital in the north. They've attacked the Indonesian hospital. And so it seemed that the the, the health system in northern Gaza was uh, uh, being dismantled. When I was at Shifra, I had at no stage come across any uh, 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 armed presence. I would walk freely as I was trying to find the kind of equipment and, and the dressings as we were running out of them. I would go around the hospital trying to get what I needed from other departments and other operating rooms. At the stage, did I see an area that looked out of bounds? Uh, and, And I've been down to the radiology department to get radiologists to comment on some CT scans of my patients. Still, I could not see anything. Actually, at some stage, I came to the realization because we weren't getting any. Kind of men that looked like they were fighting men. I came to the realization that most likely there was a parallel military medical system, because even the wounded that we were getting were all civilian, and, and you, we weren't getting any of the you know any fighting men that were being wounded. And so it was obvious. It became obvious to me that, that there was a parallel system that existed, but, but in Shifa Hospital even the policemen who were trying to maintain crowd control in front of the emergency department so that the relatives would not completely overrun the emergency department
2: thank you so much dr abu Siddhar. pleasure to hear from you uh, even though it was a very grim message next on gps how do israelis and palestinians feel about each other their own governments about hamas about prospects for peace We have some fascinating answers from
1: important surveys when we come back. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy the gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Adi Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
2: So how do the Palestinians feel about Hamas, about Israel, about the prospects for peace? My next guest has the answers to some of the biggest questions about the war. Amani Jamal is the Dean of Princeton's School of Public and International Affairs. She is also a founder and principal investigator of the Arab Barometer, a polling organization. Her most recent survey of Gazans completed on the eve of the Hamas attacks provides a surprising snapshot of a people deeply disillusioned with their leaders. Dean Jamal is with me now to unpack that survey and discuss the broader changes in public opinion across the Middle East. Amani Jamal, pleasure to have you on. Pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me. So let me start by asking you a question that I often get asked. What does it mean that the Palestinians elected Hamas? How much weight should you put on that statement?
6: Well, that's a really good question, Farid. I mean, when you think about today, what's going on today, how much weight should we put on the elections in 2006? First of all, I want to sort of draw... At the attention of everyone, that about 50% of the population of Gaza has been born since 2006. <laughs> so they weren't even born in So the, they weren't yeah. even born. So that's 50% who weren't even born. But even when we go back to the day, when we sort of dissect that 2006 election, what we know is that Hamas won 44% of the popular vote. So it was never that they had this landslide victory. And we also know from 2006, a lot of that vote was based on combating corruption in the ranks of the Palestinian Authority. Hamas succeeded because it had a platform of holding the Palestinian Authority accountable for their largesse and their corruption levels of corruption and their excesses in in terms of the way they were governing.
2: So when we look at it today, what what do we know from polling data about the level of support Palestinians had for Hamas uh, before the
6: attacks? What we know is that in the three to four weeks before October 7th, two-thirds of the Palestinians said they had no trust or little trust in the Hamas governing regime of, of Gaza. Um, on the West Bank, those low levels of trust are even lower. For the Palestinians. For the party. Palestinians on the West Bank. So across the West Bank and Gaza, there was very little support, if you may, or very little trust in the Hamas-led government. Only about a third of Gazans said they trusted that government. More importantly, 72% of Palestinians in Gaza said they felt that there was widespread corruption in the ranks of the Hamas-led government.
2: So um, what do we know? I mean, I know I'm asking you to speculate now, Mm. but about the sort of rally around the flag effect. Now that that Gaza has faced this massive bombardment from Israel, is it possible that they're rallying
6: around the Hamas flag? So when we look historically at our data, what we know, Farid, is that when you have these cycles of violence, it plays brilliantly in the hands of Hamas. Hamas ends up benefiting uh, with more people supporting its government because it's seen as trying to, quote unquote, protect the Palestinian people. Resist the... Resist, resist right. the Israeli sort of uh, assaults uh, onto Gaza and whatnot. So this has traditionally benefited um, Hamas. Having said that, this time we're seeing levels of destruction and devastation that we haven't seen in previous cycles. We need to think about how these levels of violence might sort of bode well or or not for Hamas. But I think if we take a more dynamic also and multi sort of contextual or a multifaceted perspective on what's going on, I think support for Hamas is also going to be linked to what happens with support for the Palestinian Authority on the West Bank. So if the Palestinian Authority continues to be seen as delegitimated or lacking legitimacy and lacking credibility and seen as a governing authority that is also corrupt and lacks popularity and has been unable to move the peace process forward, then this might mean that citizens will still sort of rally around Hamas because there isn't an obvious governing authority to rally around.
2: You do polling in the whole region, so another question that I think um, a lot of people might have is, the Abraham Accords, where Israel makes peace with some of the Gulf Arabs um, and, and, and Morocco, was premised on the idea that the Arab street says it cares about the Palestinian issue, but they really don't, and that these governments could make a deal with Israel without worrying too much, that they would be offending their street, their population. What does your polling tell
6: you? So our polling tells us that this has never been substantiated uh, across time. Consistently throughout our polling, the issue of Palestine resonates well Uh, it's an extremely important, high priority issue among populations across the Arab world. I do believe maybe among the leaderships, among the governments, there was a desire to move on beyond the Palestinian issue. Some believing that the Palestinian issue was holding them up. Um, As you know, regional dynamics have shifted. More of the countries, including Israel, along with Arab countries, sort of view Iran as a threat so that people would like to sort of maybe have alliances with Israel to sort of protect against uh, the Iranian axis. And those leaders also needing to move beyond the Palestinian issue to form those alliances. Um, so, so th- But it's a state uh, issue. It's not, it's not
2: the perspective of
6: society. No, this is a state issue, Farid, not the perspective of society. In a post after this vile, after this war, uh, whenever
2: that is, what do you think we'll see in terms of Palestinian public opinion, in Gaza particularly?
6: So I really do believe, Farid, it's gonna depend on what happens now. You know, violence breeds violence. And if, if violence were gonna solve this conflict, it would have been solved by now. So my worry is that this, th- this violence is gonna set a whole new generation in the future to sort of believe that in, in violence as a discourse. If we're able to emerge from this crisis, where there's some sort of agreement, that uh, let's say you know Hamas emerges weakened or agrees to some sort of uh, demilitarized sort of status quo, this might allow for pa- for the Palestinian Authority to play m- a much more meaningful and impactful role in the transition. But if the discourse is we've had this destruction in Gaza, uh, Hamas might remain viable and. There needs to be just another governing authority to govern the citizens of Gaza with no hope for peace or for statehood or better economic or political future. I think we're gonna see more of the same, Farid.
2: Pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Pleasure is
6: mine. Thank you so much.
2: Next on GPS, I'll unpack the life and legacy of Henry Kissinger with Neil Ferguson, the statesman's official biography. Few public figures in the United States have been so lauded and so loathed as Henry Kissinger. Joining me to discuss his complex legacy is the renowned historian Neil Ferguson. Neil is a senior fellow at Stanford University. He spent nearly two decades researching the statesman's life. His biography, entitled Kissinger the Idealist, spans roughly a thousand pages, and that's just volume one. Welcome Neil. Um, let me ask you, you've seen social media, you've seen some of the articles and the, you know, there is an enormous amount of animosity uh, and hostility uh, surrounding Kissinger uh, and an often very personal, personally calling him a war criminal. I wanted to ask you just what is your first, what is your reaction to that kind of charge?
7: Well, My reaction to much of it is uh, revulsion, frankly. Uh, Nil Nisi Bonham is a good rule, but it hasn't held back uh, the haters. Of course, Henry Kissinger never expected to win a popularity contest on Twitter. Indeed, from his earliest times, he understood that to pursue a successful foreign policy, a statesman was almost bound to be unpopular. So I don't think it would surprise him that there's been a lot of vituperation To me, as an historian, it's just frustrating uh, because it misses some very fundamental and important points about the nature of foreign policy. For example, that most choices are between evils and you just have to try and choose the lesser evil.
2: So give me, uh, let's talk specifics. Uh, Take the bombing of Cambodia, a secret bombing, uh, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Cambodians killed. And the critics would charge all this, you know, a terrible tragedy for nothing because it was sort of meant to uh, frighten the North Vietnamese into concessions which they never really made.
7: Well, a couple of points about the Cambodian controversy. The, the first is that the most influential book on that subject is William Shawcross's Sideshow, Uh, But William Shawcross has since largely repudiated that book and concedes that it exaggerated significantly the death toll uh, to Cambodian civilians. So that's a little bit of a problem uh, for the Twitterati. Uh, The second point is to remember what the objective was, not just of bombing uh, Cambodia, but later sending U.S. troops uh, into Cambodia, which in fact caused even more controversy. Uh, the North Vietnamese were the ones who'd vi- violated the neutrality of Cambodia, and they were using it uh, to funnel troops and weapons uh, into their war against South Vietnam. Uh, so there were strong military arguments for attacking the North Vietnamese bases uh, in certain parts of Cambodia that were crucial to their war effort. This didn't really particularly emanate from Kissinger. It really came from the Department of Defense. Indeed, it came from the U.S. military Uh, in Vietnam. And uh, Richard Nixon was president, not Henry Kissinger, when these decisions were taken. So I think that the second point I'd make is that most of the critics don't have the faintest understanding of the conflict in Indochina, and in particular of the malignant role that North Vietnam played in in violating neutrality not only of Cambodia, but also of Laos.
2: What about uh, Bangladesh? This is the one I have the most difficulty with, which is Kissinger wholeheartedly backs Pakistan as it you know, really engages in a pretty brutal campaign. In this case, we do know hundreds of thousands uh, were killed. Uh, and again, unsuccessful because uh, East Pakistan becomes Bangladesh. Uh, the attempt by Pakistan, that is West Pakistan, to continue to control it didn't work. Uh, And yet, uh, you know, you have this moral abomination on your hands. What do you make of that?
7: Gary Bass has an excellent book on this, which is highly critical, uh, channeling really the arguments of uh, State Department personnel who felt strongly engaged uh, in the issue. But Kissinger's point uh, all along was there's a hierarchy of priorities. What were the strategic priorities Uh, of the Nixon administration. Well, the first was to get out uh, of Vietnam. The second was to uh, improve relations with the Soviet Union to avoid a kind of third world war, which after all had come quite, quite close in 1962. And thirdly, to open to China, and that opening to China is generally regarded as Henry Kissinger's most brilliant strategic move. Well, there was no easy way of getting uh, communications uh, to Beijing, particularly at the height of the Cultural Revolution. And it turned out that the key channel that the Chinese were prepared to trust, they tried many, but that was the one the Chinese trusted, was Pakistan. Uh, There's another dimension to this, which was Richard Nixon's quite strong aversion to the Indian leader, Indira Gandhi. But I don't think that was crucial in Kissinger's mind. For Kissinger, ultimately, you had to sacrifice lesser pieces on the board in pursuit of ultimate victory in the chess game. And I think it's important for Reid to see that that was very much the way Henry Kissinger thought about diplomacy as a, an elaborate game of chess that were really two big players, the United States and the Soviet Union, and tragically a country uh, like Bangladesh as it became was just a relatively small pawn. Now this is very hard for uh, the critics to uh, accept because most of them have never sat in the situation room. the most difficult decision most critics of Henry Kissinger ever have taken is a tenure uh, d- decision at a history department. they find it very hard to realize that when you are making decisions at the highest level of foreign policy there have to be a uh, there has to be a hierarchy of priorities. that is by the way just as true today. As it was back in the 1970s. The odd thing to me, Fareed, is that there's a double standard. For some reason, and one can guess about why, Henry Kissinger has been subjected for 50 years to a much tougher standard of moral judgment than other national security advisors and secretaries of state. And this is a puzzling phenomenon because it's not as if he's the only secretary of state or national security advisor who ever had to turn a blind eye uh, to a trustee. Neil, we're
5: flat
2: flat out of time. Uh, We will have you on uh, again, as we always do. Thank you for that. And thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week.